0: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later on the pod, Dan's interview with Democratic Digital Strategist and the co founder of Acronym, Tara McGowan. Before that, we'll talk about the escalating impeachment probe and Michael Bloomberg's entry into the presidential race. A few other pods you'll want to check out this week from us. The second episode of Tommy's special Pod Save America on the ground in Iowa series drops tomorrow. On Tuesday, Tommy takes us inside a caucus and lets us know exactly how it works. It's a great episode. Uh, There's also a very funny episode of Love or Leave It from over the weekend you should check out. On Wednesday, you'll hear a Thanksgiving mailbag episode that Tommy Lovett and I have already recorded, as well as an interview I'm doing with our good friend Adi Barkin. And in case you missed it, check out last Thursday's epic episode of Hysteria, featuring Gloria Steinem, who was here at Crooked Media headquarters. Highly, highly recommend The Conversation. Check it out. Um, Finally, Stacey Abrams needs our help. We're trying to raise another million for Fair Fight 2020 to help protect the vote which fair fight has already done in Louisiana and Kentucky where Democrats just won it is incredibly important to uh, help them be on the ground now in advance of 2020 so please go to votesaveamerica.com/fairfight to help us crush our new goal and of course if you pre-order Dan's new book on trumping America you will be able to help fair fight through uh through buying the book as well
1: John, I didn't even put book promo in the outline. You did it for me. Fucking, I really appreciate you know, that. Happy Thanksgiving. I just did
0: it off the cuff. I just did it off the cuff. It just came to me. It was inspirational. You,
1: you You just made it into the uh, Pfeiffer family Thanksgiving dinner, what I'm thankful
0: for. So congratulations. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, all right, Dan. The, uh, the impeachment hearings are over for now, but uh, new evidence and new co-conspirators just keep coming out of the woodwork, uh, potentially including... The top Republican on the committee that's been running the impeachment inquiry. That's right, Devin Nunes might have been part of the same election rigging scheme that he's supposed to be investigating as part of the Intel committee. Over the last two years, reports say that Nunes has been conspiring with corrupt Ukrainian officials to take down Joe Biden. He met with them in Vienna in 2018. And his staffers scrapped a 2019 trip when they found out that they'd have to notify Adam Schiff and instead met via Skype. And how do we know all this, Dan? How do where are these reports coming from? Uh, The Internet. (laughs) More than the Internet, Dan. It's coming from Lev Parnas, the indicted Soviet-born mobster who says that Trump pulled him aside at the White House Hanukkah party and gave him a James Bond-style mission to get dirt on Biden in Ukraine and now his lawyer is telling reporters this is what he wants to testify that and 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 by the way he doesn't just want to testify he has records about all of this so um what was your what was your reaction to this story about devin Nunes' involvement and uh, and how big of a deal do you think this is
1: i mean even by the standard of devin Nunes' incredible corrupt stupidity this is pretty mind blowing is he sat there for days pretending as if this was all some sort of hoax and he was in on the crime to begin with reportedly in on the crime. We can talk about whether we believe this or not, but it is certainly very credible given how Nunes and his staff have um, handled, have behaved since the day Trump was elected. We remember him heading over the white house to tip people off about the Russia investigation, hiding in bushes Um, when that was discovered his staffer who uh, Kash Patel, who came up in the Fiona Hill hearings, as someone who was involved in Ukraine policy in ways in which they probably shouldn't have been, so it it is certainly credible, I guess, given what we've seen from Nunes and his staff thus far.
0: Yeah, and look, it you know it explains a few things. Uh, one, why Devin Nunes looked so uh, bad out of shape earlier in the week when Eric Swalwell asked for a previously reported Daily Beast story about how Parnas helped arrange calls in Europe for Nunes to be read into the record so explains that you know and then Devin Nunes of course is asked about this by Maria Bartiromo uh another big Trump supporter uh, posing as a journalist over the weekend and uh Devin Nunes doesn't deny it he doesn't deny it he basically just says he is planning to sue CNN and the Daily Beast which is uh how he rolls now when someone uh, talks about him or reports things that Lev Parnas's lawyer said.
1: <laughs> but he said he couldn't discuss it because it involved criminal activity, which seems to be a little bit of a tell, if you will.
0: <laughs> well, in his in his uh, mind, the criminal activity is on behalf of the news organizations who, again, reported what this guy's lawyer is saying. <laughs> now, I mean, the question you know you raised is should should we trust Lev Parnas? <laughs> And, uh, you know, what do you think?
1: Yeah, look, I think we have to take it with a grain of salt, but it is credible. It fits with a pattern and helps explain Nunez's very uh, specific reaction when Eric Swalwell brought this up. It does honestly speak to the immense stupidity of Nunez that if this were true, that he would sit on the committee this whole time and just leave himself open to this. He could have easily recused himself, um, which is probably what everyone in the Republican Party would have wished since he was kind of sort of layered by Jim Jordan to begin with. Um, so like, I don't think we should like assume this is 100% true, but I think it at least fits with a pattern of behavior.
0: Yeah. And look, the other thing we know is uh, ABC News reported on Sunday that the House Intelligence Committee is already in possession of videos, photos, and audio recordings handed over by Parnas that include Giuliani and Trump. Um, We, of course, don't know if Devin Nunes is is part of that as well. But it certainly seems at this stage that uh, the whole Parnas affair is much more of a Michael Cohen style thing (laughs) than something else. Because as we know, you know, Michael Cohen uh, said he was going to flip on Trump, and everyone's like, "Well, who knows if he's telling the truth or not? He's a liar." And then, of course, Michael Cohen had all the receipts. Um, you know, it does seem like if Parnas is turning over evidence anyway, uh, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't really make sense for him to lie about this stuff. And here's the other thing you need to know: like, of course, from from Devin Nunes' perspective, right? Like, the source of all of these conspiracy theories is the same, right? And so, like. John Solomon, you know, pretend reporter that used to write for The Hill and a bunch of right wing conspiracy theorists, right? Like, how long have they been pushing this bullshit narrative that somehow Joe Biden did something corrupt in Ukraine? And so it would totally make sense for not only Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani, but the other um, crazy right wing trumpist assholes in Congress, like Devin Nunes, to completely buy into this. And Devin Nunes thinking to himself, like, yeah, well, in 2018, Joe Biden's going to run for president, and I'm going to get to the bottom of this conspiracy theory that I've heard from John Solomon that, uh, you know, he had some corrupt activity in Ukraine. So I might as well send some of my fucking staffers over there and go meet with the fired corrupt prosecutor myself in hopes that I can get some dirt.
1: I mean, the odds that Devin Nunes took a selfie with a fired prosecutor under a welcome to Vienna sign with the hashtag Biden time is like at least 50 (laughs) percent.
0: The other thing we know is, uh, you know, Adam Smith, who is the House chair, top Democrat on the Armed Services Committee, was interviewed over the weekend. And he said uh, Devin Nunes will likely face an ethics investigation over this news. That would be Devin Nunes' second ethics investigation in just a couple years. The first uh, he was ultimately cleared of um, uh, leaking classified information during the Mueller hearing. So that's great. Um, We should also mention that. Documents released late on Friday by the State Department show that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo got on the phone with Rudy Giuliani at least twice in March to talk about the smear campaign against former Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. And Pompeo asked Rudy to send over a packet of his nutty conspiracy theories, which Rudy did uh, in an envelope that, uh, with, with the Trump markings on it. Um, <laughs> Dan, how significant is Pompeo's role here?
1: Well, it's not surprising. I mean, of course. Of course Mike Pompeo, who is the ultimate political hack, Trump ass kisser, of course he would be involved. There's no way he would like he would have too much FOMO to not be involved in the criminal conspiracy. (laughs) So he's definitely there. I mean, so let's just like yes, it like it says so much that it's not a surprise, right? Like it's not a surprise that he's involved, and not a surprise that he has lied about it. Remember when he went on uh the Sunday show, right after the reports about the whistleblower came out, and he basically pretended to have no knowledge of any sort of conversation with the Ukrainians, only to then find out days later that he was on the call. I mean, it just yeah. like it sort of speaks to our lowered expectations. But it like if you just sort of do the roll call of criminality here, so involved in this criminal conspiracy in some way, shape, or form, either the crime itself or the cover up, you have the attorney general, the president, the vice president. The secretary of state, the director of national intelligence, the White House chief of staff and the White House and the president's personal attorney all have somehow been involved in this and now possibly also the top ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee. It is the, the easier question to answer is who wasn't involved in Washington?
0: Yeah, when uh, Trump megadonor turned Ambassador Gordon Sondland testified that, quote, everyone was in the loop, uh, he wasn't kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're not, you know, again, we're not making this shit up. Gordon Sondland testified that all of these people, minus Nunes, uh, although who knows what he knows, uh, but certainly Pompeo were in the loop, and you know, and Fiona Hill basically the next day sort of backs up Sondland and she's like, "Well, I hadn't realized it at the time, but yes, there were some of us who were doing foreign policy, and national security, or thought we were doing that, but then there was another group of people who inv- who include apparently most people in the upper echelons of the government who were doing a domestic political errand, as she said for Donald Trump, uh, and and it seems like Mike Pompeo was part of that. Um, meanwhile. We got Rudy Giuliani, who's been out there on television saying that he has <laughs> he has some kind of insurance policy, in his words, that will stop Trump from throwing him under the bus. Uh, on Saturday, he sought to clarify this on Twitter. Uh, here's his tweet, all caps: "Truth alert! <laughs> That's how you know something good's coming." Uh, the statement I've made several times of having an insurance policy, if thrown under the bus is sarcastic and relates to the files in my safe about the Biden family's four-decade monetizing of his office. If I disappear, it will appear immediately along with my RICO chart. What the fuck is he talking about? (laughs) This (laughs) Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, ran for president. This is what he has been reduced to if i disappear magical files will be released but they are the files
1: that trump and Barr want to come out were they to actually right. exist <laughs> I mean. so he, I know
0: i know i know he's going to end
1: <laughs> up in a black site on a barge off of poland it was like where people are demanding the rico chart like it makes i mean it's so stupid and sad and his like he i mean i, mean, I, mean, something's I, don't, know. R- I don't know it's sad i don't sad's not the right word it is I mean, it's sort of infuriating that this person has a, apparently a large amount of influence in American politics.
0: A huge amount, and not apparently based on the testimony of every Trump administration official who has gone before Congress. Rudy Giuliani was directing our fucking Ukraine policy, and here he is not making, making less sense than even Donald Trump in a tweet. I mean, this man is seriously unwell. Did you Not read
1: well. did you read Olivia Nuzzi's story this morning about what it's like to I text didn't have with, time, with Giuliani? It is it, so it is so funny. It apparently he in addition to butt dialing reporters and leaving crimes on voicemails, he he also he's very big into using the you know like the The reactions on the iPhone, like the like and the thumbs up, like the thumbs up and the exclamation point. And he will often like go back like 37 texts and like some of his own statements. And (laughs) he, he sometimes will send to reporters just things that aren't for them at all. Like he sent one reporter a picture of him on a boat smoking a cigar or something like that. And then it quoted some White House reporter as saying, "The best time to get Rudy is like eight or nine when he's quote a little loosened up, but not yet unhinged."
0: Oh my God, that's the sweet yeah. spot, huh? Yeah,
1: just like a couple um, of, a couple of drinks in.
0: I mean, we should note the 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 import of this is that Rudy Giuliani is currently under federal investigation, um, and there could be a situation where he is uh, indicted or charged with something, and then the question is. What will he say about Donald Trump? Um, you know, do, do you think Rudy goes down for Trump? I don't know.
1: Why do you think? Why do you think Trump and the Republicans haven't thrown Rudy
0: under the bus? I think. I mean, other than other are,
1: than the of the insurance.
0: No, I think. I mean, obviously, the insurance policy he's talking about is fucking nonsense. But I do think that um, the reason that Trump hasn't—I mean, Trump is doing something very unusual, which is. He's not throwing Rudy under the bus, but he's also not talking about him anymore or defending him. And in that middle ground, the, what that tells me is Trump knows full well that Rudy knows everything um, and, and could be very damaging to him and doesn't want to piss him off, but also doesn't want to have a ton of association with him anymore because he is under federal investigation and, and could very well be, uh, be in big trouble. That's my thought. What do you think?
1: I think that is certainly part of it. Like Trump has been crime adjacent most of his adult life and has managed to stay out of prison. So he, like, he's more thoughtful about how not to go to jail than he is on almost any other issue. But I also think this is a little bit of the trap of the perfect call defense, which is because Trump can never admit doing anything wrong, even slightly wrong, he's forced to stick by Rudy and Mulvaney. Right. Two people who could easily right. throw under the bus and blame for this. And the most tip in any other normal, normal seems so fucking quaint, but any normal political situation, there would be a fall person. Right. It would be we would decide Republicans would go to Trump and they would say the best way to protect you is to get rid of Rudy. Like someone has to take the fall because we need to be able to blame someone other than you. So we're going to blame Rudy for being overly enthusiastic in his service of you and crossing some lines and we're going to blame Mulvaney for allowing the the security aid to be held up and creating this problem. And Mulvaney is going to go, and we're going to shit on Rudy, and he's going to be persona non grata for a while. But Trump can't allow that to happen because he can't admit that anything went wrong. And so he has put himself in this very strange position.
0: Yeah, strange is one word for it. Um, Let's talk about the evolving Republican response to impeachment, uh, beginning with the target of the investigation, Donald Trump, on friday uh... he wanted us all to know just how little he cares about impeachment by calling his spokespeople at fox and friends and ranting for fifty three minutes straight no commercials (laughs) here is a clip
2: they have the server right from the dnc democratic national committee who has the server the fbi went in and they told him get out of here you're not gonna we're not giving it to you they gave the server to CrowdStrike or whatever it's called, which is a country which is a company owned by a very wealthy Ukrainian. And I still want to see that server. You know, the FBI has never gotten that server. That's a big part of this whole thing. Why did they give it to a Ukrainian company? Are you sure they did that? Are you sure they gave it to Ukraine? Well, that's what the word is. And that's what I asked actually in my phone call, if you know. I mean, I asked it very point blank because we're looking for corruption.
0: That's that's what the word is. That's what the word is. Fucking nonsense. <laughs> nonsense. Every word of that was complete nonsense. And you can tell because even Fox and Friends was... Con- you, he has stumped Steve Ducey. <laughs> he, has, he has made Steve Ducey question him. I mean, I'm
1: sure, I'm th- I'm sure Trump's going to call into Fox and Friends a thousand more times before the election, and I hope he does. But the next time I'm positive the producers of Fox and Friends will not just spend the whole time on a reaction shot as Ducey and Kilmeade and the other person uh like they're trying so hard not to look horrified and like keep a straight face but they can't cuz they know they're facilitating just absolute stupidity. I mean it, it's like it's a truly mind boggling thing. It is worth noting that a server is not a thing. It is 2019, Meet the
0: Cloud. Too uh, I mean That is the craziest part of all of this. The man thinks, we talked about this before, but it is not said nearly enough. It is not printed nearly enough in the stories about this. The man thinks that a physical server is lost somewhere in Ukraine. And he doesn't realize that when the FBI checked this out, they were checking fucking cloud compute. The emails are in the cloud. There is no physical server. The president may be impeached over asking, forcing, extorting the Ukrainian government to look into a conspiracy about a server that does not exist. He is the president of the United States.
1: Um, also, another important point, CrowdStrike, not a Ukrainian company. An American nope, company. Based in Sunnyville, a, California.
0: Uh, guy that owns it? Russian-born. <laughs> Just nothing to do, nothing to do with the Ukrainians at all. No server, not in Ukraine, not owned by Ukrainians. FBI already checked it out. Check, 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 check. Donald Trump still believes this. Republican members of Congress still believe this, like fucking Devin Nunes, uh, Senator John Kennedy, who started spouting this bullshit on TV. I mean, it's fun to mock this, but why is this crowdstrike conspiracy like really problematic?
1: I mean, other than the complete blithering idiocy of the president and his political party, as the New York Times reported over the weekend, this conspiracy theory is is part of a Russian intelligence operation to try to avoid blame for the 2016 election interference. That's exactly what they're doing. And like, they just must wake up every day and be like, I cannot believe these people believe it. Like when they started this. Like a lot of things, it's about just creating doubt on the fringes of the internet. And here you have the president of the United States calling into a national television program, just echoing it. You have all of the Republicans in a nationally televised congressional hearing echoing it, even though all of the intelligence agencies of the government, of said president, run by appointees of said party, have said that it is not true, and they still do it. It is, I mean, it is is mind-bogglingly stupid and dangerously so.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's also an, an interesting line from the New York Times story. It said, uh, the Russian intelligence officers conveyed the information about this conspiracy to prominent Russians and Ukrainians who then used a range of intermediaries like oligarchs, businessmen, and their associates to pass the material to American political figures and even some journalists who were likely unaware of its origin, the officials said. Uh, interesting that the New York Times wrote about this since uh, one of the journalists who... <laughs> did write about this conspiracy theory, uh, now works for the New York Times. Ken Vogel, at the time, he was at Politico and wrote the famous Politico story about the Ukrainian involvement in the 2016 election, which has since been debunked, but has been read by just about every Republican defender of Donald Trump during this impeachment process. So I thought that was interesting.
1: (laughs) Well, John, as you know, Ken Vogel can do no wrong, because Ken Vogel told us that.
0: I mean, props to the New York Times for even in a very oblique way admitting that one of the people who currently works for their uh, news organization got snowed by a Russian intelligence operation. I mean, this is what the sad part here and the scary part is this is what the Russians, this is, as you said, the Rus- this is what the Russians could only dream about, right? That this Ukrainian conspiracy theory, all they want, they, they don't expect that uh, everyone in the United States will suddenly believe this. They want to just sow just enough doubt. And make this a partisan divisive issue so that eventually Democrats and, you know, the intelligence community and the media and everyone else believe the truth, which is the Russians were involved in the election. But one major political party and an entire conservative media infrastructure and the president of the United States all believe now something different. Or at the very least, they think that the Ukrainians were involved in addition to the Russians. You have some Republicans saying that, well, I believe that the Russians were part of this, but, you know, maybe the Ukrainians were part of this, too. Who knows? All a Russian intelligence operation. That's what they're all falling for right now.
1: I mean there's a term to describe this, which is called useful idiots, um, which is yep. how you how you describe people who become part of an intelligence operation without knowing they are a part of it. And that is the entire Republican Party right now. They yeah. are I mean, like this is not to delve into like, you know, sort of Russia conspiracy things. The the this is a very simple fact that this is that the Republicans are saying something that is known not to be true, and they're and it is the thing the Russians want them to be saying.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. Um, so, in addition to just defending Donald Trump, uh, Republicans have also started to launch a counterattack over the last uh, several days. Um, on that Fox and Friends call, Trump got very excited about an FBI Inspector General report. He said will be historic when it's released in early December. Um, The inspector general at the FBI, who is independent, was looking into whether law enforcement officials abused their power when they asked courts to allow surveillance of Trump campaign official Carter Page. According to The Washington Post, the report will say that the FBI did not abuse its power, that the surveillance was warranted, but that a low-level FBI employee who no longer works there may have altered an email that was part of the surveillance application. Now the post story says, even without that altered email, um you know the the surveillance should have been approved anyway, and so it didn't uh, it shouldn't have substantively changed um the decision by the courts. but you know, uh how big of a deal will the Republicans make of this?
1: They will make a huge deal, and I suspect that not all but a decent portion of the media will follow along because this just now automatically lends itself to a he said he said story, right every like both sides, yeah. quote unquote, like if you want to do both sides journalism, it's very easy here because it's like the fundamental fact is everything the Republicans have been saying is wrong. There was no quote unquote coup. There was no attempt to overthrow a presidency. There was no criminality involved. There was no conspiracy. There was nothing. There was a counterintelligence operation that was signed off on by f- federal judges. Because of a – there was probable cause to do that. And then there was yeah. a low-level bureaucrat who altered an email, and those two things will be treated as of equal import, and that is unfortunate and alarming.
0: When they shouldn't, because if, if the reports about the report are true, um, the report will actually blow a hole through multiple conspiracy theories that Republicans have been pushing for quite a while now. They keep saying that like, oh – you know, that the Democrats funded this dirty dossier from Christopher Steele. And that's why there was an investigation into the into uh, Donald Trump and his campaign. And, you know, The Washington Post says this report will say, no, absolutely not. Um, This investigation was not started because of the dossier. These uh, application for surveillance did not get approved because of any information in the dossier. And that while the dossier existed and maybe some of the information in the dossier um, wasn't correct, None of the investigation into Donald Trump's campaign happened because of Christopher Steele or this fucking dossier. And that is basically the foundation of the Republican conspiracy that uh, the Russia investigation was a hoax. That was the foundation of that. And this report could completely blow a hole in that.
1: Well, it's like the original. I think the Post broke this story, I believe, on Friday or time has basically been a flat circle since we started group threading at the crackass of dawn, but I think it was Friday. <laughs> um, the uh, and the story led with the FBI attorney, if I remember this correctly, uh, with the FBI attorney altering the document. And I get like I sort of understand from a journalistic perspective why that's the case because that like a FBI employee doing something wrong and getting fired for it is quote unquote news. But the context of this is so important because the actual news is the primary talking point of the President of the Republican Party over 3 years has been undermined by the inspector general appointed by his attorney general right like right. that should be the end of that but because like ex- like new like context is often more important than what is quote unquote new but because what but what was new here um is going to sort of muddy up the very important contacts that this report provides.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, and which is what they do for everything. I mean, there's like, I think there's, Trump is on record saying this, this inspector general is, uh, everyone should respect his work. He does amazing work. Um, well, if he blows a hole in the conspiracy theory. I don't know if he'll be saying that. Although, like you said, he'll cherry pick whatever he wants and just lie about it because that's what they do now. Well, I mean, Um, it's
1: it's like Kevin McCarthy who on the day after Sunland testified in front of the nation that there was a quid pro quo, Kevin McCarthy went out and said, I enjoyed the testimony. There was no quid pro quo. It's like, if you can, like, I hate the term gaslighting, but that's what's happening here.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're not even, they're not even trying anymore to come up with lies that are believable in any way. That's 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 where we're at. Um,
1: can I can I shoot another question here? Just as we talk sure. about sort of Nunez and uh, Pompeo, mm-hmm. have you know, noticed that the people like there was an element of like being in public life where if someone had allegations about you or your office or your boss, you had to respond to questions about it in some way, shape, or form. And yeah. the Republicans now just don't respond. Like there is no comment from Nunes' staff about this, you know, either like a reporter would call and say, is this true? Yes or no. And you would have to say something, right? And in that answer, you could divine, you know, the reader in the reporter could sort of divine where it's going, right? Did they confirm or deny it? Did they outright deny it? Did they try to provide some sort of context or like, but now, and this has been, I think, really something that's changed since Trump's come on the scene is the Republicans just don't respond to the reporters they don't want to respond to. And so
0: they have they have decided to delegitimize the nonpartisan media and the only legitimate media is Fox and other right wing outlets. And so because they've delegitimized the rest of the media and said that it's biased and fake and, and out to get them just like Trump has said for the last couple of years, they don't believe they have any kind of obligation to answer reporters questions. And in the rare moments that they are on television answering questions from nonpartisan media, like, you know, I don't usually watch the Sunday shows, but I have for the last couple of weeks just to keep up with an impeachment. And mostly they can just run circles around the hosts, you know, even when the hosts are trying their best. Like I I, on Face the Nation uh, this Sunday, Kellyanne Conway gets on there with Margaret Brennan and just lies for 10 minutes straight. Nothing that she says resembles the truth at all. And because Brendan's trying to get through all of her questions, you know, she doesn't stop and correct everything. And so these people figure, well, I got five minutes on television. Uh, they're going to have to cut away after that. So I can just keep lying and lying and lying and lying. And then that's it. And then I'm done. And then there's no consequence for that.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, so obviously some like Jake Tapper do pretty well in those scenarios, mm-hmm. but it is it is also the hosts are in an impossible position because what do you do, that's right. right? It's, it's, there's a- I mean, you
0: have to you have to be willing to get into a very uncomfortable exchange that Republicans will then use to point out that you're some kind of a partisan hack. Right. Like if it, or you have to decide, I'm going to ask this person about one thing and when they lie, I'm going to just keep going and going and going on that one topic and that one lie and try to call them out for that and get rid of the rest of the questions that I was going to ask. I mean, so you have to make that decision and I almost think that would be more useful, but I think maybe the most useful thing would be to not book congenital liars on your shows anymore.
1: Yeah. It's one I option. just th- I just think the opting out of mainstream media as a political strategy is not something that's being talked about enough. And I don't it doesn't no. feel like I mean, maybe these are conversations that are happening among reporters, but it's not showing up. Like it's just treated as if they weren't there to take the call, as opposed to a deliberate strategy not to answer any of the questions over a three-year period.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty bad. Well, they know. Look, they know that uh, the public believes that the media is incredibly biased. That that uh, distrust of the media is at all time high. So they don't think that there is any um, any downside to doing this. It's just like the White House deciding to c- cancel the briefing and never. You know, we have a, a press secretary who's never done a a, a White House briefing. right now because they just don't there's no punishment for it it's bad it's not great Dan
1: I know it's not
4: Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court.
3: New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great from over 1,000 amazing sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible (laughs) legal disclaimer. Paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee.
4: horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at cricketcom slash door for this month only.
0: The second part of the Republican counterattack on impeachment uh, is being led by Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham, who announced on Thursday that he'd be launching an investigation of his own into the Biden family. Uh, and to give you more Context around Lindsey Graham's history with Joe Biden, here's a clip from an interview he did with Scott Conroy during his presidential campaign in 2016.
1: If you can't admire Joe Biden as a person, then it's probably you got
4: a problem. (laughs) You need to do some self evaluation because what's not to like? I called him after Bo died, and he basically said, Well, Bo was my soul. We've talked
1: for a long time. He came to my ceremony uh, and said some of the most incredibly heartfelt things that anybody could ever say to me. And um, he's the nicest person I think I've ever met in
0: politics. He is as good a man as God ever created. I mean, (laughs) Uh, what does this this say about Lindsey Graham?
1: I mean, that he's just a horrendous human being. Yeah, (laughs) it's like, how can one person be part, say those things with what was seemingly true emotion a few years ago and be acting this way in this moment?
0: And I I just want everyone to understand, it is not as if Lindsey Graham had this relationship with Joe Biden uh, and suddenly Joe Biden, uh, there's a possibility that he was engaged in some kind of wrongdoing. And his family as well. And you think, well, I have a good personal relationship with him, but this thing came up and I have to do my job as a public official and this sucks, but that's the way it is. That's not what we're dealing with here. What Joe Biden is being accused of, which is pressuring for the firing of a corrupt Ukrainian prosecutor. Um, And and this is part of the problems with how the press has handled this, because they keep saying there's no evidence for this. There's no evidence. It's not that there's no evidence for this. It's that like. From Barack Obama down through his entire administration, through the global community, everyone, through every Trump administration official who has testified before Congress, to a person, every single one of them has said that not only did Joe Biden do nothing wrong, Joe Biden did the right thing, the right thing, by pressuring for the firing of a corrupt Ukrainian prosecutor. He was correct, The guy was corrupt. That's why the Obama administration wanted him fired. That's why three Republican senators in 2016 signed a letter in favor of what Joe Biden was doing in Ukraine. Republicans. And when he did it, it was public. Everyone knew at the time, every Republican in Congress knew that Joe Biden had put pressure to fire that prosecutor, Shokin. Everyone knew it was happening. And at the time, everyone knew that Hunter Biden was on the board of Burisma. It was public information. And no one said a fucking word until Rudy and Trump tried to go dig up this dirt in Ukraine and force an investigation into Biden. Everyone knew he did the right thing. And Lindsey Graham knew it, too. And with that knowledge that this is all bullshit, Lindsey Graham is now opening investigation into the Biden family, his good family friends, to tarnish him. That's what's happening.
1: I mean... It, like it does, like the entire Biden conspiracy theory reminds me a lot of the Obama birther conspiracy because, yeah, it is something that starts on the far edges of the internet, gets picked up by Trump and the Republican Party, and sort of the strictures of journalism may allow it to fester a bit because you're right, it is like good for the reporters for saying there is no evidence to support it every time it comes up and they've, and yeah. you know, the nonpartisan media has done a very good job of that, but you're right. It is not only is there no evidence to support it, all of the evidence proves it false. It's sort of right. the same thing with, you know, Donald Trump or Rush Limbaugh or Jerome Corsi or some other Yahoo says Barack Obama was born in Kenya. And you say, well, there's no evidence to support that. Well, no, actually there's a giant piece of evidence, including his fucking birth certificate that says he was not, he was born in Hawaii. And so you actually like it they do think it's important to go one step further because no evidence suggests, well, they haven't proven it yet. Right. As opposed to the fact that all of the evidence to accumulated, which is quite substantial, proves the opposite.
0: Well, and part of this is conflated with a bunch of people in the media and on the left saying, well, you know, it certainly was shady for Hunter Biden to get this position on a board um, for doing nothing and getting paid all this money. And it's like that fine. That has absolutely nothing to do with the allegations here, which is that, yes, Hunter Biden was on the board, but then Joe Biden took an action that somehow uh, decreased the chances that the company that his son sat on would be investigated when, in fact, all of the evidence suggests that when that prosecutor was fired, it increased the chances that Burisma would be investigated, increased the chances. And I don't you know, I don't. I don't know if uh, if everyone has made this point enough. I don't know if the Biden campaign has made it enough, though. I, I see they're on Twitter all the time talking about it. I've seen you know Joe Biden say we did nothing wrong. I, I I don't think it can. I don't think it's possible for it to be made too many times because it continues to get lost in all of this.
1: Yeah, we have to disentangle two things: whether it's a pr- whether Hunter Biden was qualified to be on that board in the intentions of Burisma and putting him on that board, and separate that from whether. He the access that he was theoretically being paid for gave him anything. And the evidence is very strongly it did not, since his father made a very public push that put the company on whose board his son sat in greater legal jeopardy.
0: And and in case you didn't get that this was all a big game that Lindsey Graham is playing, uh, here's his response today when he was confronted with, well, you've said all these wonderful things about Joe Biden in the past. Um, what are you doing? And he said, quote, I like Joe Biden. All I can say is that Joe didn't pull any punches when he ran against McCain. That's the way the system works. We're not going to live in a country where just one party gets investigated. Well, I just thought it was a stunning statement that has not gotten enough attention today that, that Lindsey Graham basically just admitted, oh, yeah, this is this is politics. We're just doing this to try to smear Joe Biden as he tries to run for president because Look, it was a tough campaign in 08 too against John McCain. And so, you know, if you use the power of the federal government to smear a political opponent, that's just the way that's just the way things work. That's basically what Lindsey Graham has admitted.
1: And yes, there were arguments, disputes, negative ads on both sides in the Obama, Biden, McCain, Palin campaign. Yes. There was no criminal conspiracy. There was no use of taxpayer dollars to smear anyone. In fact, when a question was raised by some about whether John McCain was eligible for the presidency because he was born in Panama, not on the on the actual U.S. soil, the President Obama and Joe Biden supported the notion that he was eligible for the presidency and helped pass a bill to ensure that to be the case. Yeah. So right. So let's not pretend. Let's not – have like it wasn't all hope and change in 2008 there were fights but let's not pretend these are two of the same things because they are fucking not
0: well again and this is what they're this is what the republicans are counting on right is that voters believe and people believe that politics is rough and tumble and unfortunately a lot of people believe politics is corrupt anyway and they think it's all a game where everyone tries to smear each other and they're hoping that they conflate traditional uh, rules of engagement where you run negative ads and say all kinds of bad things, which happens in campaigns all the time, and people can complain about whether it's bad or not. They're trying to conflate that with using the power of the federal government, using the powers of your official office to get personal favors and to do political bidding as opposed to the public interest, which is the which is what's at core of this entire impeachment inquiry right now. And what's scary about what Lindsey Graham is doing is Is it's not just Donald Trump anymore. It's not just Donald Trump anymore. Now it's Lindsey Graham. It's Devin Nunes. I mean, we are having this whole fucking discussion in the media about, well, can Democrats convince any Republicans to vote with them on impeaching Donald Trump? How do we convince the Republicans? We can't convince the fucking Republicans because some of them are in on the conspiracy. Well, what are you talking about? Oh, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna convince them to vote for good. They're they're fucking accomplices right now. They're co-conspirators. We're not gonna convince them of anything.
1: You well, it's very important. We did convince one of them, and they kicked him out of the party. It's an unanswerable question of anytime anyone agrees with the Democrats on right. impeachment, they have to leave the Republican Party. It impeachment is bipartisan. There is bipartisan support for impeachment. There is bipartisanship in Congress. Because of Justin Amash, there is bipartisanship in the country between a whole host of former Republican elected officials and never-Trumper types. There is bipartisan support for impeachment in Kellyanne Conway's own household.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was just reading a great piece in The New Yorker uh, right before we started recording this. Bill Weld, former Republican governor of Massachusetts also former Watergate lawyer, running against Trump now for the Republican nomination. And he's like, I literally couldn't conceive of a case that is more impeachable than this one. (laughs) Having gone through Watergate and having been a Republican most of his life, he thinks I I cannot conceive of one. There are plenty of conservatives, plenty of Republicans who believe that what Donald Trump did is impeachable. Uh, You don't have that on the other side.
1: Just to be very clear, in the 2020 Republican presidential primary, Half the candidates believe Trump should be impeached. The other half is Trump.
0: (laughs) I mean, now we should ask, you know, is there risk for Biden in all of this? Because now we're talking not just about what Graham's going to do in the Senate, but um, what's going to happen in the Senate during uh, a potential impeachment trial itself. And you can tell that one of the strategies that Trump and his Republican defenders are going to use is we're going to put Joe Biden and Hunter Biden on trial as opposed to Donald Trump. Um, so, you know, is there a risk and, and what is, what is, what can Biden do about it?
1: I, you know, when this whole process started, I thought I was pretty worried if I had been on the Biden campaign, I would have been quite worried about how this, you know, whether this would damage Biden's candidacy, whether it would affect, you know, the, the perception of electability of Biden's electability among democratic primary voters. We've been talking about this nonstop for two months now, and there's no suggestion that, that has had any impact in the Democratic primary. I So yeah. as the nominee, like worry about everything, there is risk when you get out of bed in the morning. But it seems like Democratic primary voters, at least, they may choose not to vote for Biden for other reasons. But there's nothing that I've seen yet that suggests that Biden's being dragged into this impeachment issue has affected him or will affect him going forward in the primary. There was an open question about what impact it'll have among some number of general election voters independents republican you know republicans who could potentially vote for a democratic nominee um you know what impact it'll have with them and i think you know time will tell on that but there i think there should be real there should be real concern there because this is basically rerunning the 2016 play of trying to make everyone seem almost at least almost as bad as trump
0: yeah, I, I worry about it a lot for that reason. I mean, and I, I, the, the other reason I worry about it is I think that these things end up being cumulative over time, and you might not know right away, but, you know, over time, uh, you start seeing your favorability ratings decline gradually and suddenly, you know. Now, look, Hillary Clinton at this stage in the race was more unpopular and had lower favorability ratings than any of our, any of the Democratic candidates do right now. Um, so they had already done a number on her at this point, but that doesn't mean that the more, I mean, anyone who watches Fox news, anyone who gets their information from the conservative ecosystem is going to hear that Biden is not just a bad democratic candidate, but this, you know, corrupt politician who probably did some crimes, right? Like that, they're going to hear that over and over and over again. And that, so that's the whole Republican base. Not like Biden was going to get a bunch of Republican votes anyway, but, um, you know, in a close election, everything matters. And I think if I was the, Biden campaign, I would sort of mount an aggressive paid media campaign at some point um, that at least defends him against some of this stuff. But I don't know; they also don't have that much money, and they're running in a primary, so it's kind of hard to do now.
1: Yeah, they're definitely going to need to be some paid media pushback on this, and also, like, there is an like, there is both risk and opportunity here for his candidacy because he he is bet on electability. And the great, like, one of the great pieces of evidence that, that he could theoretically be the most elected was the fact that the entire Trump administration was so scared of running against him that they engaged in a worldwide criminal conspiracy to stop him from being the nominee.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's rare. <laughs> um, so this brings us to what the Democrats in Congress should do next. Uh, while Schiff has not ruled out the possibility of more hearings, his intelligence committee is currently writing up a report. That it will send to the House Judiciary Committee, which will then decide whether or not to draft articles of impeachment against the president. So that's what's happening right now. Um, How concerned are you about the fact that we still have not gotten testimony from Bolton, Mulvaney, maybe even Parnas, if federal prosecutors are holding on to some of his evidence for trial? Obviously, the House committee has some video, photographic, audio evidence, whatever it may be. But even with Parnas, there might be a little delay here. Uh, What do you think about all this?
1: I have been a advocate for a while now of the most fulsome impeachment hearings possible with as many witnesses as possible, getting touching on as many different elements of Trump's corruption and criminality as possible. But I'm starting to change my opinion on that given how open and shut this case is and how Everything has gone the right way for Democrats. Every witness was, even the ones the Republicans called were devastating to Trump's case that like the crime is proven a hundred ways from Sunday. Um, yeah, And I just want to start to wonder whether there are diminishing returns. Like if you told me you could get Mulvaney and Bolton in here the weekend after Thanksgiving, yes. Definitely do that. Right. If you could get Giuliani in here the weekend after Thanksgiving, even for a deposition, if not actual testimony in public, definitely do that. If you're going to be involved in a Supreme Court case for six months to get you an answer to that question, I just don't know that you'll be able to hold the nation's attention long enough to receive the sort of political communications payoff of the actual impeachment vote itself.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, you know, and I've we've all had this debate with um, Brian Boitler, who uh, believes something different and believes that, that they should. And, and look, what Brian would say is, uh, I don't think you should wait six months for a court case, but I think you should at least try and set a deadline for yourself that if the courts don't decide by a certain date, then you just say, OK, we're going to go with what we have. And I get that. And I don't think there's harm in, you know, trying to subpoena Bolton. They already have a subpoena out to Mulvaney, who just, you know, basically has defied it. Um, I don't think there's harm, but I also think if the Democrats set up the idea that they need these witnesses um, to complete their case, then if they don't get them, which is very possible, suddenly it seems like, oh, well, Demo- Democrats don't have it. And like you said, this is an open and shut case. We have it. We have the evidence. And I don't know. Now, I do think it's important because a lot of Republicans are saying, you know, it's like the Will Heard defense. Well, he did something I disagree with on foreign policy, but it's certainly not impeachable. And the way you counter that part, one way you counter that is say, well, um, this is part of a pattern. And look at all the other things he's done. Right. I mean, this and this goes to a question of not just more witnesses, but do you bring in other impeachable offenses? It's part of a pattern. The guy consistently is corrupt. He consistently tries to um, get personal favors Uh, using the powers of the presidency instead of using them for the public good over and over and over again. And you can list a whole bunch of episodes of this. So I do think the pattern of behavior is important, but this also assumes that we're trying to prove this like you'd prove it in court to a, a jury of Donald Trump's peers. And instead you have a fucking jury of... Uh, loyalists, Trump loyalists, you know, and so like if, if Republicans aren't going to believe the evidence that, um, you know, Democrats have already laid out, if they're not going to believe the testimony of Trump administration officials themselves, they're not going to believe anything. They're not going to believe a audio recording where Donald Trump says, Hey, I'm going to go bribe the Ukrainians to make sure we smear Joe Biden. They'd make up excuses for that. So what are we doing?
1: What would a, jur- a jury of Donald Trump's peers be like? Who would those people be? <laughs> Hulk Hogan? I, don't <laughs> like, I just, don't,
0: it's I just rough, don't. know. It's like his fucking cabinet, I guess. Yeah. Um. And look, like there are, you know, we are in this situation where he's, he is committing, he is abusing his power more and more all the time. We haven't even talked about, and I know Tommy's going to talk about it more on Podsea of the World this week. The fact that you know Trump has basically basically ordered the the defense secretary to allow a Navy SEAL who was accused and then uh, convicted of at least one war crime to keep his status, uh, interfered in military justice. And basically the uh, the Secretary of the Navy has been fired now because he wanted to run his own military justice to uh, instill discipline in the ranks and make sure that someone who was guilty of taking a photo posing next to a dead body, a SEAL, wanted to get the, make sure that this guy faced zero punishment whatsoever, even though his fellow SEALs turned him in. His fellow SEALs turned him in. And now we have the president deciding, you know what? If you are in the military and you commit a war crime, uh, you can get off scot-free as long as you're loyal to me, as long as you go on right-wing radio and start saying that Donald Trump is great and uh, the Democrats are criminals and all this kind of stuff. If If you're a Trump guy, if you're loyal to me, you in the military can do anything and get away with it. That's where we are right now.
1: It's actually even worse than that because this isn't some, it's not even like a perverted principle of Trump's. He is responding to the pleas and requests of Pete Hegseth, who is a Fox personality, who is essentially Steve Ducey's understudy. Like this is like, this is his cause celeb is the host of Trump is doing a favor for the host of Fox and friends weekend.
0: It's, it is horrible. It is horrible. Um, la- last question on all this. So we are heading towards uh, the judiciary committee will receive a report from Schiff. They'll drop articles of impeachment. You know, this vote will go to the whole House. Uh, The House will vote on impeachment. If the House, in fact, impeaches Donald Trump, it will go to the Senate. There will be a trial. John Roberts will preside over the trial. Uh, Various uh, House members, Democratic House members, will present the case. They will be the prosecutors. And then Trump will have his defense. how are you feeling about the prospective trial? Like, what should Democrats be doing differently, if anything differently? What kind of how should their messaging evolve in this? You know, I, I have this sense just sort of reading the coverage this weekend and seeing where the Republicans are going, that they're headed towards. Look, uh, not only is Donald Trump innocent, but look at all these polls. Uh, you know, Democrats, public opinion really hasn't moved that much. No one really cares. The Democrats have failed. No Republicans have decided in Congress to join them. And so what are we really doing? This is actually going to be a big, big victory for Donald Trump because the Democrats have failed at, their, at, at moving public opinion. How, how, do, how should Democrats handle this?
1: Well, I mean, that's been the concern from the beginning. It's one of the things that gave, I think, both of us pause about pursuing impeachment in the immediate aftermath of the Mueller report is that the overwhelmingly most likely scenario is that the Senate on a party line basis will acquit Trump and there's an open question about how the media will handle that. How will that be, you know, is that a victory for Trump? I mean, yes. In the sense that he's not being dragged out of office, it's a victory, but (laughs) is it really? And so like there is real concern there. I think the thing for Democrats is to continue to frame throughout the whole process, the larger, more important question. Is it okay for a president to use the power of their office and taxpayer funded security assistance to try to rig an American election? If you think that is okay, vote to acquit. If you do not, then Donald Trump should be removed from office because like you have to frame the question and not and much like Schiff and all the Democrats in the House did a great job is don't get pulled down into the bullshit. The Republican senators are, you know, they're not going to be as absurd as. On a whole is Jim Jordan and Nunez and a bunch of these other yahoos who are on the intelligence committee. But there are going to be people who are going to be performative assholes like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or a whole bunch of other people who are looking to shine their star in Trump's Republican Party. And you can't get dragged into that. The second thing is use this as an opportunity to put tremendous pressure on Cory Gardner, Susan Collins, Tom Tillis, um Joni Ernst, yeah. the uh Martha McSally and the rest of the Republicans uh who are running in uh blue and purple states in 2020. They if they are going to end up doing what is best if they're going to put their party over the country, make them pay a political price for it in the moment and every day between now until the election.
0: Yeah, look, I public opinion polls already show that about half the country believes the president should be impeached and removed from office. That is extraordinarily significant on its own. That is a higher public approval for impeachment than in any president in the past, except Nixon right before he resigned. That's where we are already. And now we are in an extremely polarized environment where I would be shocked if any Republican who gets their information from the conservative ecosystem, media ecosystem, um, believes that Donald Trump should be impeached. I would be shocked by that because that's not the information they're getting all the time. So I don't think we should expect public opinion to move all that much. It's, ex- it's the most polarized in, in history, but I do think this has always been about um, some of these Republican senators who are vulnerable in some of these swing states. And we need to make very clear that a vote to acquit Donald Trump is a vote to greenlight foreign interference in the 2020 election, and is a vote to greenlight the idea that the president can use the power of his office to destroy anyone who challenges his power. That's what this is about. And I do think that the Democrats should make those points over and over again. It's about rigging an election and it's about the president using the power of his office to destroy anyone who challenges him. That's what he's doing right now. And if he gets away with this, if they think that's okay, then what we're saying in this country is when you get into office and you have some power and you have some control and influence over uh, federal dollars, federal agencies, people who are working for the for the government, law enforcement, the CIA, anything you can use that to destroy the career of anyone who challenges you, even if it's a conspiracy. And we're saying that's okay in America now. And you know what? If the Republicans say that's okay, then I'm not going to regret. Uh, conducting this impeachment trial for a second. I will not regret it for a second. I don't even care if it's that unpopular right now. This is about the sanctity of our elections and our democracy, and there is nothing more important than that.
1: That was great. You should be a senator.
0: It's just, you know, over the weekend, I was just like reading all this stuff, and it's like, it is is pretty depressing and a, a little bit scary that we are sort of careening towards this because I do think, look, if... You know, if if he if he is acquitted, which, of course, he probably will be when you when you see all these uh, Republicans talking. And as we've talked about, if he is, it's going to be bad. But we still have a chance to get rid of him in, in 2020. But it sort of makes the 2020 election, as if it wasn't already the most important election ever, even more critical. Because if this man who we know committed these crimes is exonerated and then wins, um, and, and David Pluff has been saying this. Imagine, imagine what he will do when he never has to face voters again in a second term. He has four years never having to face accountability or voters again. It's pretty scary. And it should scare everyone into, you know, getting off their asses and working their, their hearts out for whoever we nominate as the Democratic nominee. Um, all right. Let's talk about 2020. Speaking of that, over the weekend... New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg officially announced his candidacy for president with a video and a very expensive ad campaign. Just this week, he's spending over $30 million in 100 media markets across two dozen mostly Super Tuesday states. To put this in context, uh, the current biggest spender in the Democratic primary, billionaire Tom Steyer, is spending $1.2 million on television ads. And every other candidate is spending half a million or less. That's half a million versus $30 million in a week. Um, In his announcement, Bloomberg argues he's the right person to take on Trump. uh, And I believe we have a quick clip from his announcement ad. There's an America waiting to be rebuilt
1: where everyone without health insurance is guaranteed to get it. And everyone who likes theirs can go ahead and keep it. Where the wealthy will pay more in taxes and the struggling middle class will get their fair share. And jobs that just allow you to get by will become jobs that let you get ahead. Mike Bloomberg for president. Jobs creator, leader, problem solver. It's going to take all three to build back a country.
0: Uh, Dan, what would you think about the video? I thought the
1: video was, was good in the sense that it takes his biography and distills it in a pretty authentic way to a set of issues that would be of most interest to a Democratic primary electorate, which is not an easy feat considering he was a Republican, like three years ago. <laughs> he was the Republican. Yeah. I guess I guess it was actually longer than that. I think he switched in his last term from Republican to independent at some point. But he was the Republican mayor of New York City, billionaire owner of a media company uh, and is now running the Democratic primary. And so, you know, that that's a marketing challenge, to say the least.
0: Yeah. And look, you can tell who their audience is for this ad. It is not uh, democratic primary activists. It is not progressives. It is people who are moderate and progressive leaning who think, yeah, I, I, you know, I've heard of Bloomberg. I think he was, I heard he was a successful mayor, rich guy, owns a business. And, uh, oh, look, I guess he did stuff on climate, which he did, uh, on gun control, which he did. Um, and I like that. And, you know, he's rich, but he says in this ad, uh, he's going to raise taxes and, uh, you know, he's going to give an option. He, you know, he took an in, uh, indirect swipe at Medicare for All, but said, you know, he's for uh, a public option in the video. And so that's the kind of audience. And these people are probably less engaged in politics. Um, the question is, how many of them are there? Right? Like, and and the other big bet he's making here as part of a strategy is, again, these ads are running in Super Tuesday states. He's skipping The first four primary states, he's skipping the debates because he's not taking contributions. And to get into the debates, you have to have a certain number of donors. So because he's not doing that, he's going to skip the debates. And he's betting, will these very sleek, well-produced ads be enough for all these people in Super Tuesday states to suddenly say, yeah, I like this guy and I'm going to take a chance on them, even if I don't really know him that much and I haven't seen him in the debates?
1: I think it is a long... Shot for Bloomberg for the reasons we suggested. He's getting in it late. Um, he is a former Republican who has some real challenges with the African American community based on the law enforcement policies that were in place when he was the mayor of New York. Like real challenges. But if there were a path, this is the path. It is don't get sucked in in the early states, wait, wait it out, let it sort itself out. And If for some reason Biden were to falter in those early states, and maybe only Sanders and Warren make it out, and you've set yourself up for the potential to be the moderate alternative—I don't want to not electable—the moderate alternative to this other group, and to sort of bring in what remained of the Biden coalition or what remained of the Buttigieg coalition—and the—and the thing is, this is a path only available to a billionaire. I guess his yeah. advertising campaign is what, like 30, $34 million, which I think is like someone told, I saw something that was like the equivalent of writing a $300 check for the average American. Um, and to give you yeah. a sense of, this is a sense of scale. This is from Shane Goldmacher, a New York Times reporter, that if you watched the 5 p.m. newscast all week in your, on NBC in your hometown of Los Angeles, you would see 20 60-second Bloomberg ad. That is an <laughs> okay. ungodly sum of money he is running more ads in each of these markets all around the country than I think almost any Democrat is running in the Des Moines market in the most important state, in the or the, at least the first state in the Democratic primary process. It is an ungodly sum of money. Will it work? Open question. I mean, it's a it's a long road.
0: That's the big question is, does this work? I mean, we, we, we have seen that Tom Steyer's uh, significant ad spend did get him onto the debate stage. It did get him past the threshold in polling, and suddenly you saw him pop up in a couple polls in the early states at like three, four, five, six percent uh, higher when he started than he is now. And the thing that Michael Bloomberg has going for him over Tom Steyer is uh, he's much richer. He's a much richer billionaire than Tom Steyer, and he's got higher name ID than Tom Steyer.
1: But the thing, the thing I'd say about all of this though is Bloomberg does not. He is surrounded by some really smart very data oriented political operatives like they definitely see a path. I think that I think they are probably clear eyed about the narrowness of that path, but they, they see one and they wouldn't have done this without believing that there was an investment that investment here could pay off like that. Like this is not a, like I'm not saying Bloomberg does not have a large ego, Everyone in politics, particularly billionaires in politics, have a large ego, but he he has walked away from the possibility of running many times before because he didn't think he could win, and he made a different decision this time, and that suggests that something in their data shows a path, and as we should at least think about that. I, I think the New York-based media complex tends to overrate his chances, but we shouldn't underrate them either.
0: Yeah. And look, you can uh, you can buy ads, but you can't buy enthusiasm. And that's basically their bet right now that um, (laughs) that you don't really need a a lot of enthusiasm or grassroots support to win the nomination and the presidency and that you can just sort of um, message to uh, the moderate part of the electorate and then maybe the more disengaged part of the electorate. And that's going to be enough. And, you know, I don't it's quite a bet to make because I don't think clearly enthusiasm alone is not enough to make you president of the United States but if you look at the people who have won the nomination in the presidency all of them have some sort of fan base and we have yet to see the Bloomberg fan base materialize um but perhaps we will um how how do you think his candidacy could change the race for any other candidate
1: i mean it, i think that's really i've been trying to think about this in the context of you know just all the you know all, all the candidates fighting for you know, some lane to get to 15% enough for delegates or whatever. And I think the real thing is, is we do not know the answer to that until after probably South Carolina. It's just, it's a wholly different thing based on which candidates are out there. I think the most likely scenario is it affects no one, right? He spends all this money stays in the low single digits. That support is dispersed among two or three candidates. Um, but, you know, if it's – let's say it's a two-person race coming out of the early states between Biden and Warren or Biden and Sanders, or whatever else, and then Bloomberg's getting 4%, that 4% could be decisive because that's probably mostly coming from Biden. Um, if it's three candidates, less so. It's, just, it's really it, – really, we really need to know who the who makes it out of the early states with any chance of accumulating delegates going forward to know whether Bloomberg gets there. But it's – like the path you have to see to really be specific on this – Bloomberg's got to go from where he is now to above fifteen percent almost everywhere, and that's hard. Yeah, that's a hard thing to do, even with all those millions and billions.
0: I think I think right now he's serving as a uh, arguably effective punching bag for Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, because he's making their case for them that uh, billionaires shouldn't buy democracy, and so they're out there whacking him. And I'm sure that's that's helping them. I'm sure you know he he may be making a mayor pete and a joe biden a little bit nervous since he's you know trying to get into their lane or an amy klobuchar um but like you said i think i think you're right like let's let's give the ad campaign a couple of weeks and let's see what happens in these early primaries because it's really just hard to predict this stuff now which is why we don't do it um okay when we come back we will have dan's interview with acronyms tara mcgowan
2: And enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer paid for by Votesave America. VotesaveAmerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidates' committee.
4: horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at Cricket.com slash store for this month only.
1: I'm now joined by the founder and CEO of Acronym, a leading progressive digital strategy nonprofit, Tara McGowan. Tara, welcome back to Pod Save America.
3: Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me back.
1: Of course. Since you were last on the show in the spring, Acronym has announced a $75 million digital campaign Uh, On behalf of the Democrats, what can you tell us about why you launched that and give us an update on your progress?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are, the program that we launched out of acronym and our affiliated PAC, called PACronym, uh, is called Four is Enough. Um, and uh, David Pluff, who I know you know very, very well, uh, joined me in, uh, in rolling this campaign out and in co-chairing it with me. So, um, and, you know, you and everybody else at Pod Save America have been you know, sounding this alarm as have we at Acronym for a while about um, really the unprecedented spending the Trump campaign has been doing online. And um, as of right now, uh, the Trump campaign has spent over twenty-eight million dollars on Facebook and Google alone, and they really are running a general election campaign. And, and we've never seen spending like this this the early or in the ways that they're doing it. So after sounding the alarm for a really long time, we we really felt that um, it wasn't enough to to just kind of be be raising the alarm bells and talking about Trump spending, but to really make sure that we also on the left were driving um, information, facts, and narratives to voters in the battleground states every single day where they're getting their information online. So, you know, one thing that I think can get easily misconstrued is that I I really don't think that it's about matching Trump dollar for dollar the way that traditional political consultants think about kind of uh, television spending or points in a competitive way. Um, We really believe that even if Trump wasn't spending any money online because of the way the information ecosystem exists today and where people get their information online, we should be doing this anyway. We should be reminding voters of the stakes of the election and getting them the information about the corruption in this administration every single day. And so, um, you know, our, our alarm is heightened by what Trump's campaign is doing and able to do uh, while we're in a competitive primary. But But honestly, this is something we should be doing anyway.
1: Can you expand on that a little more when you talk about the way the information ecosystem is today? What do you mean?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, for for decades and decades, um, there were very few trusted channels where people went to get their news and information, mainly television, radio and newspapers. Um, And and now we live in a digital age where where media and news and information is distributed across so many more channels. And increasingly, um, people of all ages and and backgrounds are getting their information online and on their mobile. Mobile phones and on social media, and it's become a lot more of a, a passive um, experience where you're, you know, you're scrolling through your news feeds or your Instagram feeds or Twitter, um, and 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 you're really taking in what's given to you. Um, on these platforms from your friends and and people you trust or influencers. And you're not kind of going to specific websites or or newspapers to get that information. And so um, the way that platforms like Google and Facebook have changed the media environment in, 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 in a lot of really disruptive ways, right? We're seeing um, a lot of traditional media companies and publications not be able to keep up or or make the revenue they need to stay in business. These platforms have monetized um, our attention, right? We're spending so much time on them that you you actually really have to spend money to, to get your message across, even to people who like your Facebook page or follow you on Twitter. And so um, Trump and his campaign really understand that. And so they not only you know have the bully pulpit and drive a narrative that gets picked up by the press... But they also pour uh, gas on, on the flames of, of their lies and misinformation by putting money behind those ads and behind that content on social media platforms. And um, for a really long time, we just we haven't been doing the same thing on our side. We've kind of continued to rely on the traditional media and, and earned media to, to drive information and make sure that, that folks are, are getting reached with, with that information. And that's just not the case. We have to be a lot more deliberate because of the way social media has changed the way we consume information.
1: Let's say hypothetically, the Trump campaign was spending no money. And you guys or other democratic or progressive entities were not spending money on the sort of digital campaign you're talking about. Would the information ecosystem as it exists benefit one side or the other?
3: Absolutely. Um, so if, um, if if we weren't spending any money at all, if neither side were spending any money, frankly, at all on social media platforms, um, people would still be getting their news and information there. And so the information that they would be getting um, would be coming from um, publishers and incumbent Uh, politicians and candidates who have large bases of support or followers on those platforms. So Trump has obviously um, invested heavily in Facebook since 2015, um, his campaign. And of course, um, in being in the White House and having the bully pulpit, he has an enormous audience and reach, as do publishers like Fox News and Breitbart that amplify his message. So even if we weren't spending any money at all um, and they weren't spending any money at all, they would still be able to reach um, a lot of people. And, you know, they wouldn't be able to target people who don't like their pages. But because they have these built up audiences, when they post something and their audience sees it and engages with it or shares it, then it expands that reach. And so putting money behind content on social media platforms allows you to target it and ensures you break through because that's how the platforms work right now. But if you didn't do that, you have to rely on your existing audience. And um, Trump just has a huge competitive advantage over the left because we don't have a candidate right now. We don't I mean, we don't have a nominee. And so we don't have a center of gravity or leadership that's that's able to kind of drive a consistent narrative to a large audience the way that Trump does.
1: Over the weekend, the Wall Street Journal reported that your effort the with acronym and PACronym is being helped by James Barnes, who was the Facebook employee who was embedded in the Trump campaign and someone the Trump campaign referred to as their quote-unquote MVP. Um, can you tell us about the decision to bring James on board and, and what, if anything, you could share with us that you've learned from him and his experience?
3: yeah of course so uh, James was not an obvious uh candidate to work at acronym um obviously so uh he he was um uh he 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 was a republican he is now a registered democrat he also was the facebook employee that was embedded in the trump campaign as you mentioned um which you know was not his choice per se, even at the time he was doing his job, um, there were, he had democratic counterparts, one of which, um, is also full-time at acronym and has been for a while to tend to Musa Patika. And, um, she worked on the democratic side and worked closely with me when I was running digital at priorities in 2016. So the way that it sort of came about is that, um, James had, a you know, a real, uh, personal, um, motivation and reason after the election results to, to, to want to think about how he could do whatever he could in 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 his power and in his control and with the expertise he has about Facebook and 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 political messaging and and advertising online to get Trump out of office, um, and I think. You know, people's motivations are something I think about a lot. Whether people are motivated by money or power or, or, or different things, um, James really spent a lot of time thinking about the implications of the work he did, and not that you know it was the the reason that Trump won. You know, I think there's there's so many factors involved with that win, but he felt a responsibility. He 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 personally voted for Hillary Clinton. He was personally really really shocked, um, as many of us were after the election. But of course, had this more personal experience being a part of the other side and um, while that that meant that when I first heard about James I had no interest in meeting him um, for my own personal reasons of how hard I and so many of my colleagues and friends um, poured our our time and our hearts and our lives into making sure Hillary Clinton would be the the president um, it, it took some time but I was really interested and intrigued in 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 his background and in in knowing if he was, if he was being honest, honestly, um, I was curious. And so I, uh, you know, I, I decided that it was worth a conversation and James and I had many, many, many conversations before I brought him on board and built a lot of trust with him and realized that his motivations were pure. He, he he very much wants to do whatever he can in his control to get Trump out. And, and that is how I feel. And that is how everyone at acronym feels. And he brings a lot of um, really interesting experience and knowledge and expertise to our team. And we feel really grateful to have him on board.
1: How would you describe to a layperson the difference between how Trump used Facebook in 2016 and how Democrats did?
3: Well, so it's. Um, I would say that uh, it comes down to kind of the the culture of the campaigns, and something I talk about a lot is um, the the similarities between President Obama, President Trump, and and even Bernie Sanders. Each of their first campaigns for president, um, there's there's a common uh, approach that they all took that I think is really interesting and. None of them were the obvious candidates. Um, None of them had an obvious path. Um, They all were disruptive to the status quo in a number of different ways, and they all really empowered risk-taking and I think um, investment and innovation in, in digital outreach and organizing and communication to build movements, frankly. And I think that when you are the underdog and you do not have a clear path, especially as a candidate running for, for national political office, um, you've got to try everything. You've got to throw everything at the wall. And that is that is where innovation um, is usually born. And so I think that what happened on the Trump campaign is that they did not have a clear path and they used every tool and channel available to them. And and learned very quickly um, that they could raise a lot of money and identify supporters when they had no idea where to start on Facebook. And so that meant that they invested even more in Facebook. And I think because, um, so many of us in the Democratic Party, including myself, who worked on President Obama's reelection campaign on the digital team in 2012, because we were really known as the ones who, who, who drove a lot of innovation um, in the digital space when it came to campaigning, um, I think that we rested a little bit on our laurels. I think that we, you know, took for granted that these platforms were changing so quickly, and that the other side, especially Trump's campaign, was was you know experimenting more and taking more risks, and frankly, just pouring more money into these platforms. And so, um, in large part, I don't think that we evolved our playbook as much as we could or should have. And I say that feeling a great deal of responsibility for my own role and my own position in 2016. And so, I do think that. Um, you know when you suffer a great loss or you're an underdog you are you're compelled out of necessity to try things differently and so i don't think that they had any you know dark magic or or some you know rocket science strategy i just think that they they needed to take risks and then they put money behind the things that they found that were working um and that that ended up giving them uh, somewhat of a competitive advantage
1: over the last few Months, I guess there's been this larger conversation um, among Democrats and progressives about Facebook advertising, sort of sparked by Facebook's decision to not fact check the ads from politicians. So you, you know, if you you believe that Trump is more likely to lie and Facebook's gonna let him to do it. And then we sit you and I sit here and talk about A, Trump's spending advantage on Facebook, and B, the innovations that they made in 2016 it does it sounds appealing to some that facebook would follow twitter's lead and ban political advertising you have been a very outspoken uh opponent of that idea can you explain to why facebook uh banning political ads would be bad would help trump and hurt democrats
3: yeah absolutely and i want to i want to start and be really really clear that um i think one of the biggest dangers and threats to our democracy and certainly to um, Democrats' prospect of taking back power and, and getting Trump out of office next November is is the spread of misinformation and lies, and and the um, the way that misinformation is spreading is incredibly complicated. It is a complicated problem. And so it's going to require complicated nuanced solutions. And so I think while everybody is quick to find a silver bullet to make sure that we are are regulating and eliminating um, the spread of misinformation online, it's unfortunately not going to be as simple as any one policy change, Um, mostly because a lot of misinformation spreads organically um, in ways that I just described with, with with channels and brands and candidates who have really large followings on these social media platforms, they don't even need to put money behind um, lies to really get those to spread. Because oftentimes it starts with you know a meme, or it starts being seeded out by a network of of organizers online, and then it and it and then it spreads like wildfire because it, it drives so much engagement. So one thing that's really important to note is that even if all of the social media platforms and technology platforms like Google and Facebook banned political advertising on their platforms, it would not stop the spread of misinformation on their platforms. I think that's really important to note. So when Twitter came out in a very you know righteous public way about banning political ads, number one, most political advertisers and campaigns do not spend money or significant sums of money on Twitter, because it's really an influencer space. You can influence a narrative, you can you can drive a narrative there, but you're not really reaching most of the American people. That's not where they're spending their time. And so it didn't hit their bottom line, and yet it made them you know, it was it was pretty much I think a very positive move from them from a PR perspective, but it applied pressure on platforms that that are much more powerful than Twitter at at reaching voters um, and and reaching people across this country. So you know what Google has done now in 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 essentially limiting targeting capa- capabilities and different tools for political advertisers. One, it, again, won't eliminate misinformation or the spread of misinformation across Google channels and properties and ad networks. Um, and and two, it uh, it will also have uh, a really negative and, and potentially dangerous impact on the ability for grassroots organizations and campaigns to build and communicate with their supporters um, to raise money online. Um, every ad on Facebook that is uh, that is an online fundraising appeal from a small or insurgent uh, candidate or campaign that is those are tagged as political ads. So it's really important that people understand um you know the broad still still shape-shifting definition of political ads as defined by these platforms that are not regulated and also you know how how political ads are being used to really drive grassroots support and fundraising which essentially is democratizing our campaigns more than we'd seen before before those existed. Um, So it just, I I think that it is a complicated problem that requires complicated solutions. And I think people, it makes sense that people are very, very quick to try to, you know, lobby or demand what sounds like a silver bullet solution, but it's just not. And so more than anything else, what we wanted to do was try to provide some context and nuance to that conversation that, um, yes, we need to get rid of misinformation online. That's going to take uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of thoughtful um, discussion. One thing that Facebook could do immediately is close their loophole that allows politicians to lie in advertisements. So no other political advertiser, including Acronym and Pacronym, our organizations are able to lie. We are beholden to being fact checked for every advertisement we place on those platforms. We believe that candidates and political um, elected officials should be held to that very same standard. And that is a very simple loophole that Facebook could close that they're unwilling to do. And I think that's also um, adding to, to this debate.
1: The way I've tried to explain this to people in a, in a way that I think is less eloquent than yours was, but is that Facebook or Google or whoever else banning political ads would limit the ability of the Democratic nominee to respond to the information that's already spreading like wildfire on these platforms.
3: Yeah, and it would limit their ability to raise grassroots dollars to be able to compete with Trump's war chest and infrastructure. Um, it, it, that's really equally important to me as getting information and facts to voters at the same clip as they are spreading lies and misinformation. Is the fact that we are um, we are the party of, of an incredibly diverse and 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 extraordinary electorate. We have power in numbers on our side if we can communicate to them and turn them out um, in the election next year and. And that also means getting our candidate the resources that they need to compete. And so, I, I think that's just an important piece of the conversation that's been missing as well.
1: I'm going to tee you up to um, pitch uh, our listeners who uh, to support your efforts. But in doing so, can you tell us the scariest thing that you've seen the Trump campaign doing on digital advertising?
3: Oh, sure. So. Um, Our team spends way too much time (laughs) focused on uh, on what Trump's campaign is is doing online and who they're reaching and how. And um, two things give me um, uh, give me a great deal of anxiety. Um, The first is how for how long um, the Trump campaign has been at this work, spending money and collecting data about their supporters and finding other likely supporters in the battleground states. Um, it's not just for fundraising and 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 having a big email list to fundraise off of. Um, the Trump campaign has really um essentially mined an enormous amount of data already um, that is going to make them more effective at targeting both their supporters and turning them out, but also potentially spreading lies and misinformation to our potential supporters online. Um that's that's and, really fi- hard and to finding measure.
1: new supporters, right? Yeah,
3: and finding new supporters, absolutely. I, we we believe you know i don't have i don't have proof to back this up although brad Parscale's been pretty, pretty transparent about it in his Fox News interviews. But, um, you know, we believe that they are actually identifying likely supporters and registering them. Um, uh, brand new people who've never voted before, have never been part of the process, um, who are re- they are registering to vote and will turn out as Trump supporters in states like Wisconsin uh, and Minnesota and Michigan that, that we know um, could really come down to a very small number of votes in the election. So that that's really scary to me. The other thing that we're seeing um, that I think is only going Going to uh, get worse <laughs> over the next coming months is that they are uh, targeting um, smaller audiences of voters uh, with with persuasive messages um, in the battleground states uh, to to build support for Trump among these audiences. So the examples that I've been giving is you know reaching um, Venezuelan expats in Florida um, with Spanish language ads about their Uh, bold position on what's happening in Venezuela right now, the administration's position, uh, targeting different voters with messages about bills they've passed and how, you know, this is what it takes, like no more Mr. Nice Guy, right? This is how we change Washington. Because I think one of Trump's strongest, strongest messages is actually the most disingenuous one he has, which is that he's there to drain the swamp and he is not um, emblematic of the corruption that, that that he talks about being seen on both sides in DC when he is literally the most corrupt president we've ever had in this country. But that is a message that resonates with people. And it is something that they drive a consistent narrative around and then, and then really kind of get surgical with how they communicate that to people who they know it will resonate with.
1: Tara, thank you so much. How can our listeners support your efforts?
3: In so many ways. <laughs> um, so, one, um, when we launched Four is Enough," um, we did we we launched it through our pack. It's really important to us that, while of course I I fundraise to make sure we have the resources we need, that um, this is a space where people can get involved and contribute their time, their small dollar donations, and their voices um, while we while we are in the in the midst of a primary. So. For everybody who has anxiety over what Trump is able to do and build, um, and the voters he's able to talk to right now, while we're still focused on a primary, this is a space where you can lend your support. You can lend your small dollar donations. You can buy merchandise that we have, but also just using your voice and making sure that we are all um, we are all in in unison, communicating as loudly and every single day we can about the stakes of this election and how corrupt this administration Administration is and how he has broken promises to people that took a chance on him. And so, um, For Is Enough has a, a simple site at uh, pacronym.org, and you can go there to find out more and you can buy swag. We have uh, impeachment pins and t shirts, and, um, and we're going to be rolling more content out, but also. Um, to your listeners in particular, because um these folks are are paying attention and um, and and they care deeply about the stakes of this election, is to not think that because maybe you don't live in a battleground state or or you don't have the ability to write really big big checks to organizations doing this work, is that just being out there on your own social media channels every day is really important. And I think that we we have to remind people that the other side they they are a smaller group of voters than than our base, um, but they can be louder, and that can influence the narrative, and that can really influence the election. And so we've got to get really loud, and we've got to be consistent, um, and and we've got to focus on 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 the on the shared mission that we all have, which is getting Donald Trump out of office. So. Would love to encourage folks to help uh, donate, um, be a part of our campaign, but also just, and you can use the hashtag for is enough, make sure that you're talking about the stakes of this election every day in your own voice, because that really will matter.
1: Tara, thank you so much. And we, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon as this campaign plays out.
3: Thank you, Dan. And thank you so much for everything uh, you guys to keep folks informed. I really appreciate it.
0: thanks to Tara for joining us today and uh happy thanksgiving Dan yeah you have a great thanksgiving
1: too and ha- happy thanksgiving
0: everyone all right guys we will uh we'll see you after the break bye, bye. everyone Pod of America is a product of Crooked Media the senior producer is Michael Martinez our assistant producer is Jordan Waller it's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support, and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Malconian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week.